This is week six of this sermon series we've been going through called Unafraid. And I think one of the things that I've noticed as we've done this series, kind of one of the real common threads of this series, is it's not like God waited around for his superstars to interject into terrifying, difficult situations. He didn't. He didn't wait for the, you know, Hall of Fame, five talent gifted ones in order to uh, do great things in the midst of great fear. Think about Moses. I mean, Moses at the burning bush, he was just an excuse maker. Over and over again, that's what he did. And yet God, in his miraculous, powerful, incredible way, transformed Moses into the great deliverer of the Israelites from Egypt. Think with me about the spies. Remember, we, we looked at them together, the 12 spies who went into the land of Canaan. And even though Joshua and Caleb were quite awesome when they came back, the other 10 were like whiners. Do you notice that? And then we also looked at the disciples. And yeah, God used the disciples after the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came in power But before the resurrection, they were deserters. That's who they were. And then God turned the world upside down through the early church. Last week, I had a chance to share with you about David. And what's so interesting is uh, David was an afterthought. Did you notice that in that chapter, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, uh, the book of 1 Samuel? is like Samuel comes to Jesse's house. Jesse has eight sons. He parades his seven sons. And he says, is this it? Wait a second, I do have another son. He's a little shepherd boy, you know? And so, and think of what God did through David as well. So here's what I want us to get. Here's what I want us to understand in this Unafraid series. It's not about the super talented, super gifted, bold personality type of people. God uses us who can be terrified if we're willing to step into areas and be obedient to him in ways that he just, through his spirit and his power, infuses us with courage. And we see another person like that today. His name is Daniel. I shared with our children's director, Jen. I said, hey, Jen, David and Goliath, I did last week. Daniel and Lion's Den this week. Maybe I should have been a children's pastor, you know? Because, but what you find is these are not just children's stories by any stretch of the imagination. These are powerful, incredible stories about people whom God used who are just like us, flawed, frail, fearful, all of those kinds of things. I'm going to have you turn to Daniel chapter 6. That'll be where we'll primarily be focusing our attention this morning But I want to give you a little reflection with me, a little context is actually what it is before we jump into chapter six, because context is always important, right? Even knowing what was going on politically and what was going on in Daniel's life before we jump right into Daniel chapter six. We get a glimpse of Daniel in chapter one, but also his three buddies, his three friends who also loved and honored Jehovah. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. And you say, what? Yeah, that's their Hebrew names. When you're in heaven and you see Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, don't call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? Those are their Babylonian names. 
too bad that's how we remember them. But these were men of God who were teams for God. Because what most of us know is that Daniel and his buddies uh, were kind of some of the first who came into Babylon during the exile. We get a glimpse of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, about his incredible commitment to the Lord. Daniel 1, 8 says this, but Daniel resolved, that's such a good word and such a good translation, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It's not that he was on a Daniel diet, okay? That wasn't a deal. The deal was he had a law, the Mosaic law, that forbids certain types of food. And Daniel was absolute, flat out, totally, 100% committed, that's the word resolved, to obeying Jehovah God and the law. And as we know the story, God showed favor to him. And uh, that's when he caught the notice of uh, a lot of the officials there in Babylon Daniel had quite a career, and, and this is such a lesson. I mean, um, it's pretty amazing that a man, as we will see, of the character of Daniel in a nation that was, we absolutely should use the word pagan nation, that he was able not just to survive but thrive at the highest, highest levels of government. That's just an amazing thing, isn't it? It really is. So anyway, I want to give you a little bit of the last part of Daniel chapter 9. Excuse me, Daniel chapter 5 is what I meant, verse 29. We'll be there in a second. Daniel chapter 5 is what is kind of this transition from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and all these awesome things we see in Daniel's life, and then chapter 6. The predecessor of Belshazzar, who's the king here, was Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was just a wicked guy. And so those of you that know Daniel chapter 5 know that's where the term, the handwriting on the wall comes from. Because <laughs> a hand appeared and wrote these words on the wall. And Belshazzar, this wicked king, was pretty freaked out, which I don't blame him. And wanted to understand, wanted somebody to interpret what this message meant. So people knew, some of the people knew that Daniel knew how to do that kind of thing. He had read visions and done all kinds of things in his career. And so Daniel goes in and essentially tells Belshazzar, tonight, not only are you going to be overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, you are going to die Look at verse 29, be up on the screen. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third, <laughs> the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Darius took over the Medo-Persian empire because Babylon had been conquered. Now we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. But before I start reading, I need to tell you something. Daniel, at this time, is in his 80s. 
Is that octogenarian? Do I remember that word? Have I heard that word before? He is in his 80s. Just keep that in mind. Because this is one impressive guy. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule through the, throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel already was put in one of the top positions of this brand new empire that had conquered Babylon. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his contact of, uh, conduct of government affairs, but they were not able to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, probably like me, even just seeing those verses, the two terms that just jump out to me are he distinguished himself and his exceptional qualities. Most believe, I think it's just good scholarship, that Daniel, when he was exported to Babylon, was in his teens. Now he's in his early 80s. And he has served in positions of authority and power for, what is that, close to six decades, right? This guy is amazing. This guy is amazing. You know, sometimes when you see people that are of that age, even in our generation, in our, in our world, you know, in our time with all the medical type of assistance we have, you know, it's like, wow. And then when they haven't lost a step, it's like incredibly wow, you know? And when they're still sharp and can still lead and their lives are so impressive, his life was so squeaky clean, his life was so above reproach. Some people say, man, that guy must have great genes, you know? Uh, maybe, <laughs> But there's so much more to Daniel than that, as we're going to see. He wasn't just potentially brilliant and gifted and competent and all of these things. The question, my friends, is what's the source of all of that? That's what we're going to look, be looking at this morning because Daniel is not to be put on a pedestal as a superstar. Daniel can be an incredible example to you and me. And we'll see that as we walk through this passage together. So what I'm going to do... This is what I like to do, as many of you know, when I teach and preach, is to give you some, some key insights, to give you sometimes principles or insights, some things that I think rise right out of this text that are not only true to the text, but are relevant to our lives as well. So here's my first key insight. God honors a consistent testimony. God honors a consistent testimony. Okay, so they are scrutinizing his life. In our day, it would be every email, every phone call, every text, every voicemail. We are going to scrutinize everything you have ever done in your 60-plus years of leadership in the government. Nothing 
So they said, what can we do? How can we accuse this guy? We don't want him over us. That's what these administrators are doing. We don't want him over us. I know. I got it. The guy is too religious. Okay? The guy is like a religious fanatic. And people like that are dangerous. That's their thing. That's their deal. Do you think that's an accusation or a compliment? (laughs) I think that's quite a compliment. You ever been called a religious fanatic? You ever been a person referred to as just a little too much into the Bible or Jesus or Christianity? You know, you're just a, a little too hardcore about that. Damp it down. Damp it down. Do whatever you need to do. You're not fitting in here. You're a little too outspoken about the Jesus thing. Any of you ever get that? That's not a condemnation, my friends. That is a compliment. Now, don't try to be obnoxious, okay? At least that would be my advice to you. I have been obnoxious about it. Some of us maybe have. In my newfound faith as a college student, What an accusation slash compliment to him. There is nothing in his life that we can point at except the guy's too religious. He's too into obedience to the law of his God. He's too into this Jehovah relationship thing. My friends, God honors our testimony when it's consistent when we consistently walk with him. I am not saying at all life's easy. It isn't. In fact, I am finding 46 years that I've walked with Jesus, I am finding the closer I draw to him, often the more the heat gets turned up. (laughs) Some of that spiritual warfare, some of that is just life is hard and hard. and, And when I try to step into hard things and scary things and challenging things, sometimes I believe that's exactly what God's calling me to do. And it's hard. But God, as we see in Daniel, honors a consistent testimony for himself. Don't forget that. Let's remember that. Okay, I need to keep going. Um, Let's pick up in verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, Advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. These guys were shrewd. They were evil, but they were shrewd. Here's their tactic, twofold tactic that I see here. Here's part one of their tactic. Appeal to the king's ego. That tends to work. Appeal to the king's ego, as in, we think people should be praying to you, King Darius. You deserve it. It will solidify your power. Get people to pray to you. Tactic number two, 
Make sure that this decree about praying to any other God or any other person than you will die. And make sure the decree is irrevocable. And he buys it. He says, whoa, I like it. Where do I sign? You know, that's what he does. As we will see a little bit later, Darius regrets what he did. But first, let's look at verses 10 and 11. These verses are the heart and soul of this whole passage. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Let me give you my second insight. God refines a life through trials. He does it for all of us. Wherever we are in our spiritual growth and walk and journey with him, God refines a life through trials. I think verses 10 and 11 are amazing. They tell us a couple things. Number one, they tell us that, David, that Daniel did not pray unknowingly about the t- decree. He fully knew what was going on. He knew that the punishment for doing what he was accustomed to doing, possibly for years upon years upon decades, three times a day, pointing in the direction of Jerusalem from Babylon, where he lived most of his adult life. And that had become his life. This is not an in-your-face, King Darius, act from him. This is not a, you better honor my rights to pray to whoever I want kind of attitude. I don't see that at all here in Daniel. He got on his knees. He prayed, giving thanks to his God. Do you see this? As he had done before. This is not a protest. This is not an act of rebellion. This is not exercising my rights. This is a man doing what he always did. Why? Because it was super crucial to everything in his life. Did you notice that the decree was for 30 days? This is not an unending forever and ever decree Don't pray to any other God but the king. This was for 30 days, one month. That just really strikes me. You know, kind of like Daniel could have said, "Don't, don't pray for a month to spare your life. Just a month? Here's what I observe about this 80 year old. Prayer was not just a practice, it was a habit. More than that, prayer was not just a habit, it was his lifestyle. More than that, prayer was not just 
Daniel's lifestyle. It was his spiritual life source. That's what it was to him. These two verses are everything about Daniel. Prayer was a need to Daniel. I want you to hear this. Prayer was such a need to Daniel that Daniel would rather die than not pray for a month. Let's let that sink in. Daniel would rather die than not pray and commune with his God for one month. That is incredibly challenging. We're also told in verse 11 that when these men went as a group, they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. This is, this is so good. I love that phrase, asking God for help. Because it's so easy to think of this 80-year-old superstar, super spiritual, incredible man of God is maybe he didn't need help for a lot of things. You know, maybe he, you know, let me say this. One of the worst, probably one of the worst prayers you and I can pray, I really believe this, is say, God, I'm good. Don't need you. Don't need to pray about that. I got it. I'm good. I don't see that in him at all. I mean, here's this man. Yes, he was stepping into what could have cost him his life. But I love it that the fact that in the text of Scripture, it tells us he prayed for help. Lord, whatever you choose to do, I am going to honor you. I'm going to obey God rather than man. Whatever you choose to do, help me to stand steadfast in my obedience to you and what you've called me to do. Is that challenging? Is that incredibly challenging to you? Oh, man, it is to me. And that's what we see in him. And it's in that crucible, my friends, of standing with courage and and unwavering obedience to God that God just often does something remarkable. So let's, let's jump back into the text, verse 12. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, Judah, remember one of those foreigners, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you, are, that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. These guys are so obvious. I mean, we have words for people like them. The nice one is tattletale. I'll just use that one. You know, we have words for people like them. And they're schemers. There you go. That's another safe one. They're schemers. And they, they caught Darius. Look at what, the king, what happens with the king. This is so incredible. Verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Who's the one freaking out here? It's not Daniel. It's the king. 
Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave order uh, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Who's stressed out? Who's freaking out? I mean, I don't know. Daniel was maybe a little nervous looking down, you know. But the text tells us explicitly what's going on with Darius the king. He was feeling guilty. He was feeling ashamed. He had probably was feeling very taken advantage of. And yet this is what happens. Let's jump down to verse 20 because he had a sleepless night. I'm not talking about Daniel. I don't know what Daniel was doing in the, in the den but uh, Darius wasn't sleeping. Verse 20, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you have served continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lion. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted God, uh, trusted in his God. And the, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. That was actually a Persian law. The whole family gets executed. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. See, that's the part that's not a children's story right there. That's like PG-13 at least, isn't it? You know, the big V, the big violence. Let me give you my third insight. God displays his power through lived out truth. God displays his power through lived-out truth. What God has so honored and blessed and protected Daniel for was Daniel's obedience. Unrelenting, uncompromising obedience to God. And God chose to reward him. You know, I'm so struck, I really am, by by Daniel's uh, seemingly unwavering commitment to obedience to God. And here's the secret. He had a daily track record of obedience to God. He had a daily track record of communion and being on his knees and worshiping and loving and reaffirming his deep, Commitment with Jehovah God. It's who he was. And so, my friends, <laughs> this consistency, this testimony, this what I am calling prayer as his life source, not just a habit, not just part of his lifestyle. He understood it as the very source for his life, the sustenance for his life to the point that he was willing to give his life if he had to for it. Prayer was 
even more than a need. It was life itself to him. And when God's people step into trust like that and obedience like that to God, in God's mercy and sovereignty and desire for his glory to be revealed, we'll often do miraculous things. We'll often do incredible things. And God did that with him. And God can and will and does do that with us. I love this chapter because it's got a happy ending. Who doesn't like happy endings, right? Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of all languages and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. (laughs) This is so funny to me because here's this pagan king given this incredible, you know, declaration of the greatness of God. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. How much longer did this guy live? Wow. God just said, I still got work for you to do. You know, I think God says that to all of us until we take our last breath. You're here because I still have work for you to do. And Daniel did. Isn't it incredible? This is an, this is an amazing, people call, scholars call this a doxology from the lips of a pagan king about the greatness and power and dominion of God because of what God did through Daniel. Now, what I want to make sure we understand is that God doesn't need us to display his glory. He doesn't need us. But what's so awesome about him is sometimes he desires and displays his glory through us. He does. And I think to the degree that we are that committed and that faithful and that obedient and that courageous in saying yes to him, he will receive glory. He will be glorified. And the heart of Daniel was not one of self-exaltation at all. It was all about the glory of his God. And that needs to be where you and I live, amen? That's where you and I need to live. Before we end our service, I thought it would just be such a beautiful way to reflect upon the example, and he was a great example, of Daniel and his prayer and his communion with the Lord to engage in that as well through the bread and the cup. So I'm going to ask you just to to bow your heads, if you would, please. Just bow your heads quietly. We might even take 30 seconds and be quiet. That's a novel thought for some of us who rarely experience silence. Let's do that. Just tell the Lord you love him and worship him.
You are our incredible Father. And thank you for your word. And thank you for this example of a man who was flesh and blood and human and sinful and fearful and all these things he undoubtedly was. But thank you for his example. And Lord, I know I have been deeply challenged in studying this chapter that Daniel would rather die. than not pray for a month. Thank you that you reminded me, Lord, so clearly that that this chapter is ultimately not about a lion's den. It's about a prayer room. It's about a prayer room. It's about the power and the work that you do in a life in a quiet place, often in a secluded place no one else is around but us and you. Lord, help us to crave those moments with you. Help us to see those moments with you as vital to our very spiritual lives and existence. Help us to learn to listen. Help us to learn to praise you and thank you exalt you. Help us to learn to align our heart with your heart so that when we ask, we ask according to your will, not our selfish desires. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us a wonderful, beautiful symbol of your body and your blood. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you want to look at the words on the screen, my friends, you can. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want to quietly take the wrapper off your bread, your wafer. And we're going to say together in just a moment, your body was broken for me. Let's say that together. Your body was broken for me. The passage continues in the same way. After supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to open up your packet of 
juice. And we'll say in just a moment, your blood was shed for me. Let's say that together. Your blood was shed for me. We worship you, our Lord, our God. Help us to long and crave for time alone with you. Teach us to worship. Teach us to praise. Teach us, Father, to listen to your spirit. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Father, that this week, for many, maybe all of us to some degree, might be a new starting point of a deeper time of communion and prayer with you. I know you will bless that. I know you will use that in all of our lives. So, Lord, may it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.